Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett. Read by Nigel Planer. This is where the dragons went. They lie, not dead, not asleep, not waiting, because waiting implies expectation. Possibly the word we're looking for here is dormant. And although the space they occupy isn't like normal space, nevertheless they are packed in tightly. Not a cubic inch there, but is filled by a claw, a talon, a scale, the tip of a tail, so the effect is like one of those trick drawings and your eyeballs eventually realise that the space between each dragon is, in fact, another dragon. They could put you in mind of a can of sardines, if you thought sardines were huge and scaly and proud and arrogant. And presumably, somewhere there's the key. In another space entirely, it was early morning in Ankh-Morpork, oldest and greatest and grubbiest of cities. A thin drizzle dripped from the grey sky and punctuated the river mist that coiled among the streets. Rats of various species went about their nocturnal occasions. Under night's damp cloak, assassins assassinated, thieves thieved, hussies hustled, and so on. And drunken Captain Vimes of the Night Watch staggered slowly down the street, folded gently into the gutter outside the watchhouse, and lay there while above him strange letters made of light sizzled in the damp and changed colour. The city was a, was a, was a what's name? Thing. Woman. That's what it was. Woman. Roaring, ancient, centuries old. Strung you along, let you fall in the uh, thingy, love with her. Then kicked you in a uh, thingy, in your mouth. Tongue, tonsils, teeth. That's what it, she did. She was a thing, you know. Lady dog. Puppy, hen, bitch. And then you hated her. And just when you thought you'd got her it out of your, yeah, whatever, then she opened her great, booming, rotten heart to you. Caught you off, bell, bell, uh, thing. Ents. That's it, yeah. Never knew where you stood. Lay. Only thing you were sure of, you couldn't let her go because... because she was yours, all you had, even in her gutters. Damp darkness shrouded the venerable buildings of Unseen University, premier college of wizardry. The only light was a faint octarine flicker from the tiny windows of the new high-energy magic building where keen-edged minds were probing the very fabric of the universe, whether it liked it or not. And there was light, of course, in the library. The library was the greatest assemblage of magical texts anywhere in the multiverse. Thousands of volumes of occult lore weighted its shelves. It was said that since vast amounts of magic can seriously distort the mundane world, the library did not obey the normal rules of space and time. It was said that it went on forever. 
It was said that you could wander for days among the distant shelves, that there were lost tribes of research students somewhere in there, that strange things lurked in forgotten alcoves and were preyed on by other things that were even stranger. All this was untrue. The truth is that even big collections of ordinary books distort space, as can readily be proved by anyone who has been around a really old-fashioned second-hand bookshop, one of those that look as though they were designed by M. Escher on a bad day and has more staircases than stories, and those rows of shelves which end in little doors that are surely too small for a full-sized human to enter. The relevant equation is knowledge equals power equals energy equals matter equals mass. A good bookshop is just a genteel black hole that knows how to read. Wise students in search of more distant volumes took care to leave chalk marks on the shelves as they roamed deeper into the fusty darkness and told friends to come looking for them if they weren't back by supper. And because magic can only loosely be bound, the library books themselves were more than mere pulped wood and paper. Raw magic crackled from their spines, earthing itself harmlessly in the copper rails nailed to every shelf for that very purpose. Faint traceries of blue fire crawled across the bookcases, and there was a sound, a papery whispering, such as might come from a colony of roosting starlings. In the silence of the night, the books talked to one another. There was also the sound of someone snoring. The light from the shelves didn't so much illuminate as highlight the darkness, but by its violet flicker, a watcher might just have identified an ancient and battered desk right under the central dome. The snoring was coming from underneath it, where a piece of tattered blanket barely covered what looked like a heap of sandbags, but was in fact an adult male orangutan. It was the librarian. Not many people these days remarked upon the fact that he was an ape. The change had been brought about by a magical accident, always a possibility where so many powerful books are kept together, and he was considered to have got off lightly. After all, he was still basically the same shape, and he'd been allowed to keep his job, which he was rather good at, although allowed is not really the right word, it was the way he could roll his upper lip back to reveal more incredibly yellow teeth than any other mouth the University Council had ever seen before that somehow made sure the matter was never really raised. But now there was another sound, the alien sound of a door creaking open. Footsteps padded across the floor and disappeared among the clustering shelves. The books rustled indignantly, and some of the larger grimoires rattled their chains. The librarian slept on, lulled by the whispering of the rain. In the embrace of his gutter, half a mile away, Captain Vimes of the Night Watch opened his mouth and started to sing. Now a black-robed figure scurried through the midnight streets, ducking from doorway to doorway, and reached a grim and forbidding portal. No mere doorway got that grim without effort, one felt. It looked as though the architect had been called in and given specific instructions. We want something eldritch in dark oak, he'd been told, so put an unpleasant gargoyle thing over the archway, give it a slam like the football of a giant, and make it clear to everyone, in fact, that this isn't the kind of door that goes ding-dong when you press the bell. The figure wrapped a complex code on the dark woodwork. A tiny barred hatch opened, and one suspicious eye peered out. The significant owl hoots in the night said the visitor, trying to wring the rainwater out of its robe. Yet many great lords go sadly to the masterless men, intoned a voice on the other side of the grill. Hooray, hooray for the spinster's sister's daughter, countered the dripping figure. 
to the axeman all supplicants are the same height. Yet verily, the rose is within the thorn. The good mother makes bean soup for the errant boy, said the voice behind the door. There was a pause, broken only by the sound of the rain. Then the visitor said, What? The good mother makes bean soup for the errant boy. There was another longer pause. Then the damp figure said, Are you sure the ill-built tower doesn't tremble mightily at a butterfly's passage? Nope. Bean soup it is, I'm sorry. The rain hissed down relentlessly in the embarrassed silence. What about the caged whale? said the soaking visitor, trying to squeeze into what little shelter the dread portal offered. What about it? It should know nothing of the mighty deeps, if you must know. Oh, the caged whale! You want the elucidated brethren of the Ebon Knight, three doors down. Who are you, then? We're the illuminated and ancient brethren of E. I thought you met over in Treacle Street, said the damp man after a while. Yeah, well, you know how it is. The fretwork club have the room Tuesdays. There was a bit of a mix-up. Oh, well, thanks anyway. My pleasure. The little door slammed shut. The robed figure glared at it for a moment and then splashed further down the street. There was indeed another portal there. The builder hadn't bothered to change the design much. He knocked. The little barred hatch shot back. Yes? Look, the significant owl hoots in the night, all right? Yet many grey lords go sadly to the masterless men. Hooray, hooray for the spinster's sister's daughter, okay? To the axeman, all supplicants are the same height. Yet verily the rose is within the thorn. It's pissing down out here. You do know that, don't you? Yes, said the voice in the tones of one who indeed does know it and is not the one standing in it. The visitor sighed. The caged whale knows nothing of the mighty deeps, he said, if it makes you any happier. The ill-built tower trembles mightily at a butterfly's passage. The supplicant grabbed the bars of the window, pulled himself up to it and hissed, Now let us in, I'm soaked. There was another damp pause. These deeps, did you say mighty or nightly? Mighty, I said mighty deeps on account of being, you know, deep. It's me, Brother Fingers. It sounded like nightly to me, said the invisible doorkeeper cautiously. Look, do you want the bloody book or not? I don't have to do this. I could be at home in bed. You sure it was mighty? Listen, I know how deep the bloody deeps are, all right, said Brother Fingers urgently. I knew how mighty they were when you were a perishing neophyte. Now will you open this door? Well, all right. There was a sound of bolts sliding back. Then the voice said, Would you mind giving it a push? The door of knowledge through which the untutored may not pass sticks something wicked in the damp. Brother Fingers put his shoulder to it, forced his way through, gave Brother Doorkeeper a dirty look, and hurried within. The others were waiting for him in the inner sanctum, standing around with the sheepish air of people not normally accustomed to wearing sinister hooded black robes. The supreme Grand Master nodded at him. Brother Fingers, isn't it? Yes, supreme Grand Master. 
Do you have that which you were sent to get? Brother Fingers pulled a package from under his robe. Just where I said it would be, he said. No problem. Well done, Brother Fingers. Thank you, Supreme Grand Master. The Supreme Grand Master wrapped his gavel for attention. The room shuffled into some sort of circle. I call the unique and supreme lodge of the elucidated brethren to order, he intoned. Is the door of knowledge sealed fast against heretics and no less men? Stark solid, said Brother Doorkeeper. It's the damp. I'll bring my plane in next week. Soon have it. All right, all right, said the Supreme Grand Master testily. Just a yes would have done. Is the triple circle well and truly traced? Art all here who art here? And it will be well for a no-lessman that he should not be here, for he would be taken from this place and his gaskin slit, his moles shown to the four winds, his welchet torn asunder, with many hooks, and his figgin placed upon a spike. Yes, what is it? Sorry, did you say elucidated, brethren? The Supreme Grand Master glared at the solitary figure with its hand up. Yea, the elucidated brethren guardian of the sacred knowledge since a time no man may wot of. Last February, said Brother Doorkeeper helpfully. The Supreme Grand Master felt that Brother Doorkeeper had never really got the hang of things. Sorry, 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 said the worried figure. Wrong society, I'm afraid. Must have taken a wrong turning. I'll just be going, if you'll excuse me. And his figgin placed upon a spike repeated the Supreme Grand Master pointedly against a background of damp wooden noises as Brother Doorkeeper tried to get the dread portal open. Are we quite finished? Any more no-lessmen happened to drop in on their way somewhere else? He added with bitter sarcasm. Right, fine, so glad. I suppose it's too much to ask if the four watchtowers are secured? Oh, good. And the trouser of sanctity? Has anyone bothered to shrive it? Oh, you did. Properly? I'll check, you know. All right. And have the windows been fastened with the red cords of intellect in accordance with ancient prescription? Good. Now perhaps we can get on with it. With the slightly miffed air of one who has run their finger along a daughter-in-law's top shelf and found against all expectation that it is sparkling clean, the Grand Master got on with it. What a shower, he told himself, a bunch of incompetence no other secret society would touch with a ten-foot scepter of authority. The sort to dislocate their fingers with even the simplest secret handshake. But incompetence with possibilities, nevertheless. Let the other societies take the skilled, the hopefuls, the ambitious, the self-confident. He'd take the whining, resentful ones, the ones with a belly full of spite and bile, the ones who knew they could make it big if only they'd been given the chance. Give him the ones in which the floods of venom and vindictiveness were dammed up behind thin walls of ineptitude and low-grade paranoia. And stupidity, too. They've all sworn the oath, he thought, but not a man jack of them has even asked what a figgin is. Brethren, he said, Tonight we have matters of profound importance to discuss. The good governance, nay, the very future of Ankh-Morpork lies in our hands. They leaned closer. 
the Supreme Grand Master felt the beginnings of the old thrill of power. They were hanging on his words. This was a feeling worth dressing up in bloody silly robes for. Do we not well know that the city is in thrall to corrupt men who wax fat on their ill-gotten gains while better men are held back and forced into virtual servitude? We certainly do, said Brother Doorkeeper vehemently, when they'd had time to translate this mentally. Only last week down at the Baker's Guild I tried to point out to Master Critchley that... It wasn't eye contact, because the Supreme Grand Master had made sure the Brethren's hoods shrouded their faces in mystic darkness, but nevertheless he managed to silence Brother Doorkeeper by dint of sheer outraged silence. Yet it was not always thus, the Supreme Grand Master continued. There was once a golden age, when those worthy of command and respect were justly rewarded, an age when Ankh-Morpork wasn't simply a big city, but a great one, an age of chivalry, an age when, yes, brother Watchtower, a bulky robed figure lowered its hand. Are you talking about when we had kings? Well done, brother, said the Supreme Grand Master, slightly annoyed at this unusual evidence of intelligence. And? But that was all sorted out hundreds of years ago, said brother Watchtower. Wasn't there this great battle or something, and, and since then we've just had the ruling lords, like the patrician. Yes, very good, Brother Watchtower. There aren't any more kings, is the point I'm trying to make, said Brother Watchtower helpfully. As Brother Watchtower says, the line of, it was you talking about chivalry that gave me the clue, said Brother Watchtower. Quite so, and you get that with kings. Chivalry, said Brother Watchtower happily, and knights. They used to have these however, said the Supreme Grand Master sharply. It may well be that the line of kings of Ankh is not as defunct as hitherto imagined, and that progeny of the line exists even now. Thus my researches among the ancient scrolls do indicate. He stood back expectantly. They didn't seem to be the effect he'd expected, however. Probably they can manage defunct, he thought, but I ought to have drawn the line at progeny. Brother Watchtower had his hand up again. Yes? You saying there's some sort of heir to the throne hanging around somewhere? said Brother Watchtower. This may be the case, yes. Yeah, they do that, you know said Brother Watchtower, knowledgeably. Happens all the time. You read about it. Scions, they're called. They go lurking around in the distant wildernesses for ages, handing down the secret sword and birthmark and so forth from generation to generation. Then just when the old kingdom needs them, they turn up and turf out any usurpers that happen to be around. And then there's general rejoicing. The Supreme Grand Master felt his own mouth drop open. He hadn't expected it to be as easy as this. Yes, all right, said a figure the Supreme Grand Master knew to be Brother Plasterer. But so what? Let's say a scion turns up, walks up to the patrician, says, What ho, I'm king, here's the birthmark as per spec, now bugger off. What's he got then? Life expectancy of maybe two minutes, that's what? You don't listen, said Brother Watchtower. 
The thing is, the Skyon has to arrive when the kingdom is threatened, doesn't he? Then everyone can see, right? Then he gets carried off to the palace, cures a few people, announces a half-holiday, hands round a bit of treasure, and bobs your uncle. He has to marry a princess, too, said Brother Doorkeeper, on account of him being a swineherd. They looked at him. Who said anything about him being a swineherd? said Brother Watchtower. I never said he was a swineherd. What's this about swineherds? He's got a point, though, said Brother Plasterer. He's generally a swineherd or a forester or similar. Your basic scion. It's to do with being in, uh, what's the name? Cognito. They've got to appear to be of, you know, humble origins. Nothing special about humble origins, said a very small brother, who seemed to consist entirely of a little perambulatory black robe with halitosis. I've got lots of humble origins. In my family we thought swineherding was a posh job. But your family doesn't have the blood of kings, brother Dunnikin, said brother Plasterer. We might have, said brother Dunnikin sulkily. Right then, said brother Watchtower grudgingly. Fair enough. But at the essential moment, see, your genuine kings throw back their cloak and say, Lo! and their essential kingnessness shines through. How, exactly? said Brother Doorkeeper. Might have got the blood of kings, muttered Brother Dunnikin. Got no right saying I might not have got the blood of... Look, it just does, OK? You just know it when you see it. But before that... They've got to save the kingdom, said Brother Plasterer. Oh, yes, said Brother Watchtower heavily. That's the main thing, is that? What from, then? I've got as much right as anyone to might have the blood of kings. The patrician, said Brother Doorkeeper. Brother Watchtower, as the sudden authority on the ways of royalty, shook his head. I don't know that the patrician is a threat exactly, he said. He's not your actual tyrant as such, not as bad as some we've had. I mean, he doesn't actually oppress. I get oppressed all the time, said Brother Doorkeeper. Master Critchley, where I work, he oppresses me morning, noon and night, shouting at me and everything. And the woman in the vegetable shop, she oppresses me all the time. That's right, said Brother Plasterer. My landlord oppresses me something wicked, banging on the door and going on and on about all the rent I allegedly owe, which is a total lie, and the people next door oppress me all night long. I tell them I work all day. A man's got to have some time to learn to play the tuba. That's oppression, that is. If I'm not under the heel of the oppressor, I don't know who is. Put like that, said Brother Watchtower slowly, I reckon... My brother-in-law is oppressing me all the time with having his new horse and buggy he's been and bought. I haven't got one. I mean, where's the justice in that? I bet a king wouldn't let that sort of oppression go on. People's wives oppressing them with why haven't they got a new coach like our Rodney and that? The Supreme Grand Master listened to this with a slightly light-headed feeling. It was as if he'd known that there were such things as avalanches, but he'd never dreamed when he dropped the little snowball on top of the mountain that it could lead to such astonishing results. He was hardly having to egg them on at all. I bet a king would have something to say about landlords, said.
said Brother Plasterer. "'And he'd outlaw people with showy coaches,' said Brother Watchtower. "'Probably bought with stolen money, too, I reckon.' "'I think,' said the Supreme Grand Master, tweaking things a little, "'that a wise king would only, as it were, outlaw showy coaches for the undeserving.' There was a thoughtful pause in the conversation, as the assembled brethren mentally divided the universe into the deserving and the undeserving, and put themselves on the appropriate side. "'It'd be only fair,' said Brother Watchtower slowly. "'But Brother Plasterer was right, really. I can't see a sky on manifesting his destiny just because Brother Doorkeeper thinks the woman in the vegetable shop keeps giving him funny looks. No offence. "'And bloody short weight,' said Brother Doorkeeper. "'And she—' "'Yes, yes, yes,' said the Supreme Grand Master— Truly the right-thinking folk of Ankh-Morpork are beneath the heel of the oppressors. However, a king generally reveals himself in rather more dramatic circumstances. Like a war, for example. Things were going well. Surely, for all their self-centred stupidity, one of them would be bright enough to make the suggestion. There used to be some old prophecy or something, said Brother Plasterer. My granddad told me. His eyes glazed over with the effort of dramatic recall. Yea, the king will come bringing law and justice, and know nothing but the truth, and protect and serve the people with his sword. You don't all have to look at me like that. I didn't make it up. Oh, we all know that one, and a fat lot of good that'd be, said Brother Watchtower. I mean, what does he do? Ride in with law and truth and so on, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse? "'Hello, everyone,' he squeaked. "'I'm the king, and that's the truth over there, watering his horse. "'Not very practical, is it? "'Nah, you can't trust old legends.' "'Why not?' said Brother Dunnikin in a peeved voice. "'Cause they're legendary. That's how you can tell,' said Brother Watchtower. "'Sleeping princesses is a good one,' said Brother Plasterer. "'Only a king can wake them up.' "'Don't be daft.' said Brother Watchtower severely. We haven't got a king, so we can't have princesses. Stands to reason. Of course, in the old days it was easy, said Brother Doorkeeper happily. Why? He just had to kill a dragon. The Supreme Grand Master clapped his hands together and offered a silent prayer to any god who happened to be listening. He'd been right about these people. Sooner or later their rambling little minds took them where you wanted them to go. What an interesting idea, he trilled. Wouldn't work, said Brother Watchtower dourly. There ain't no big dragons now. There could be. The Supreme Grand Master cracked his knuckles. Come again, said Brother Watchtower. I said, there could be. There was a nervous laugh from the depths of Brother Watchtower's cowl. What, the real thing? Great big scales and wings? Yes. Breathe like a blast furnace? Yes. Them big claw things on its feet? Talons? Oh, yes, as many as you want. What do you mean, as many as I want? I would hope it's... "'Self-explanatory, Brother Watchtower. "'If you want dragons, you can have dragons. 
you can bring a dragon here, now, into the city. Me? All of you? I mean, us, said the Supreme Grand Master. Brother Watchtower hesitated. Well, I don't know if that's very good. And it would obey your every command. That stopped them. That pulled them up. That dropped in front of their weaselly little minds like a lump of meat in a dog pound. Can you just repeat that? said Brother Plasterer slowly. You can control it. You can make it do whatever you want. What, a real dragon? The Supreme Grand Master's eyes rolled in the privacy of his hood. Yes, a real one, not a little pet swamp dragon, the genuine article. But I thought they were, you know, myths. The Supreme Grand Master leaned forward. They were myths, and they were real, he said loudly, both a wave and a particle. You've lost me there, said Brother Plasterer. I will demonstrate then. The book, please, Brother Fingers, thank you. Brethren, I must tell you that when I was undergoing my tuition by the secret masters... The what, Supreme Grand Master? said Brother Plasterer. Why don't you listen? You never listen. He said, the secret masters, said Brother Watchtower. You know, the venerable sages what live on some mountain and secretly run everything and taught him all this lore and that and can walk on fires and that. He told us last week. He's going to teach us, aren't you, Supreme Grand Master? He finished obsequiously. Oh, the secret masters, said Brother Plasterer. Sorry, it's these mystic hoods. Sorry, secret. I remember. But when I rule the city, the Supreme Grand Master said to himself, there is going to be none of this. I shall form a new secret society of keen-minded and intelligent men, although not too intelligent, of course, not too intelligent. And we will overthrow the cold tyrant, and we will usher in a new age of enlightenment and fraternity and humanism, and Ankh Morpork will become a utopia, and people like Brother Plasterer will be roasted over slow fires if I have any say in the matter, which I will, and his figgin. A figgin is defined in the dictionary of eye-watering words as a small short-crust pasty containing raisins. The dictionary would have been invaluable for the Supreme Grand Master when he thought up the Society's oaths, since it also includes Welchit, a type of waistcoat worn by certain clockmakers, Gaskin, a shy grey-brown bird of the coot family, and Moles, a game of skill and dexterity involving tortoises. When I was, as I said, undergoing my tuition by the secret masters, he continued, that was where they told you you had to walk on rice paper, wasn't it? said Brother Watchtower conversationally. I always thought that was a good bit. I've been saving it off the bottom of my macaroons ever since. Amazing, really. I can walk on it no trouble. Shows what being in a proper secret society does for you, that does. When he is on the griddle, the Supreme Grand Master thought, Brother Plasterer will not be lonely. Your footfalls on the road of enlightenment are an example to us all, Brother Watchtower, he said. If I may continue, however, among the many secrets, 
From the heart of being, said Brother Watchtower approvingly. From the heart, as Brother Watchtower says, of being, was the current location of the noble dragons. The belief that they died out is quite wrong. They simply found a new evolutionary niche, and they can be summoned from it. This book, he flourished it, gives specific instructions. It's just in a book, said Brother Plasterer. No ordinary book. This is the only copy. It has taken me years to track it down, said the Supreme Grand Master. It's in the handwriting of Tubal de Malachite, a great student of dragon lore, his actual handwriting. He summoned dragons of all sizes, and so can you. There was another long, awkward silence. Um, said Brother Doorkeeper. Sounds a bit like, you know, magic to me, said Brother Watchtower, in the nervous tone of the man who has spotted which cup the pea is hidden under, but doesn't like to say. I mean, not wishing to question your supreme wisdomship and all that, but, well, you know, magic. His voice trailed off. Yeah, said Brother Plasterer, uncomfortably. It's heard the wizards, see, said Brother Fingers. You probably didn't know this when you was banged up with them venerable herberts on the mountain, but the wizards round here come down on you like a ton of bricks if they catches you doing anything like that. Demarcation, they call it, said Brother Plasterer, like I don't go round fiddling with the mystic interleaved wasp names of causality, and they don't do any plastering. I fail to see the problem, said the Supreme Grand Master. In fact, he saw it all too clearly. This was the last hurdle. Help their tiny little minds over this, and he held the world in the palm of his hand. Their stupefyingly unintelligent self-interest hadn't let him down so far. Surely it couldn't fail him now. The brethren shuffled uneasily. Then Brother Dunnikin spoke. <laughs> Wizards, what do they know about a day's work? The Supreme Grand Master breathed deeply. Ah! The air of mean-minded resentfulness thickened noticeably. Nothing at all, and that's a fact, said Brother Fingers. Going round with their noses in the air, too good for the likes of us. I used to see them when I worked up the university. Backsides a mile wide, I'm telling you. Catch them doing a job of honest toil. Like thieving, you mean, said Brother Watchtower, who had never liked Brother Fingers much. Of course they tell you, Brother Fingers went on, pointedly ignoring the comment, that you shouldn't go round doing magic on account of only them knowing about not disturbing the universal harmony and what not. Load of rubbish, in my opinion. Well, said Brother Plasterer, I don't know, really. I mean, you get the mix wrong, you just got a lot of damp plaster round your ankles but you get a bit of magic wrong, and they say ghastly things comes out of the woodwork and stitches you right up. Yeah, but it's the wizards that say that, said Brother Watchtower thoughtfully. Never could stand them myself, to tell you the truth. Could be they're onto a good thing and don't want the rest of us to find out. It's only waving your arms and chanting when all's said and done. The brethren considered this. It sounded plausible. If they were onto a good thing, they certainly wouldn't want anyone else muscling in. The Supreme Grand Master decided that the time was ripe.
then we are agreed, brethren. You are prepared to practice magic? Oh, practice, said Brother Plasterer, relieved. I don't mind practicing, so long as we don't have to do it for real. The Supreme Grand Master thumped the book. I mean, carry out real spells, put the city back on the right lines, summon a dragon, he shouted. They took a step back. Then Brother Doorkeeper said, And then, if we get this dragon, the rightful king will turn up just like that? Yes, said the Supreme Grand Master. I can see that, said Brother Watchtower, supportively, stands to reason because of destiny and the gnomic workings of fate. There was a moment's hesitation, and then a general nodding of cowls. Only Brother Plasterer looked vaguely unhappy. Well, he said, it won't get out of hand, will it? I assure you, Brother Plasterer, that you can give it up any time you like, said the Supreme Grand Master smoothly. Well, all right, said the reluctant brother, just for a bit then. Could we get it to stay here long enough to burn down, for example, any oppressive vegetable shops? Ah, he'd won. There would be dragons again, and a king again. Not like the old kings, a king who would do what he was told. That, said the Supreme Grand Master, depends on how much help you can be. We shall need, initially, any items of magic you can bring. It might not be a good idea to let them see that the last half of de Malachite's book was a charred lump. The man was clearly not up to it. He could do a lot better, and absolutely no one would be able to stop him. Thunder rolled. It is said that the gods play games with the lives of men, but what games and why, and the identities of the actual pawns, and what the game is, and what the rules are, who knows? Best not to speculate. Thunder rolled. It rolled a six. Now pull back briefly from the dripping streets of Ankh-Morpork, pan across the morning mists of the disc, and focus in again on a young man heading for the city with all the openness, sincerity and innocence of purpose of an iceberg drifting into a major shipping lane. The young man is called Carrot. This is not because of his hair, which his father has always clipped short for reasons of hygiene. It is because of his shape the kind of tapering shape a boy gets through clean living, healthy eating, and good mountain air in huge lungfuls. When he flexes his shoulder muscles, other muscles have to move out of the way first. He is also bearing a sword presented to him in mysterious circumstances, very mysterious circumstances. Surprisingly, therefore, there is something very unexpected about his sword. It isn't magical. It hasn't got a name. When you wield it, you don't get a feeling of power, you just get blisters. You could believe that it was a sword that had been used so much that it had ceased to be anything other than a quintessential sword, a long piece of metal with very sharp edges. And it hasn't got destiny written all over it. It's practically unique, in fact. Thunder rolled. The gutters of the city gurgled along softly as the detritus of the night was carried along, in some cases protesting feebly. When it came to the recumbent figure of Captain Vimes, the water diverted and flowed around him in two streams. Vimes opened his eyes. There was a moment of empty peace before memory hit him like a shovel. It had been a bad day for the watch. There had been the funeral of Herbert Gaskin, for one thing, 
poor old Gaskin. He had broken one of the fundamental rules of being a guard. It wasn't the sort of rule that someone like Gaskin could break twice, and so he'd been lowered into the sodden ground with the rain drumming on his coffin, and no one present to mourn him but the three surviving members of the Night Watch, the most despised group of men in the entire city. Sergeant Colon had been in tears. Poor old Gaskin. Poor old Vimes, Vimes thought. Poor old Vimes, here in the gutter. But that's where he started. Poor old Vimes with the water swirling in under breastplate. Poor old Vimes watching the rest of gutter's contents ooze by. Probably even poor old Gaskin has got better view now, he thought. Let's see. He'd got off after the funeral and got drunk. No, not drunk. Another word, ending with er. Drunk er. That was it because world all twisted up and wrong, like distorted glass, only came back into focus if you looked at it through the bottom of a bottle. Something else now, what was it? Oh yes, night time. Time for duty. Not for Gaskin, though. Have to get new fellow. New fellow coming anyway, wasn't that it? Some stick from the hicks, written letter. Some tick from the shicks. Vimes gave up and slumped back. The gutter continued to swirl. Overhead, the lighted letters fizzed and flickered in the rain. It wasn't only the fresh mountain air that had given Carrot his huge physique. Being brought up in a gold mine run by dwarfs and working a twelve-hour day hauling wagons to the surface must have helped. He walked with a stoop. What will do that is being brought up in a gold mine run by dwarfs who thought that five feet was a good height for a ceiling. He'd always known he was different more bruised for one thing, and then one day his father had come up to him, or rather come up to his waist, and told him that he was not, in fact, as he had always believed, a dwarf. It's a terrible thing to be nearly sixteen and the wrong species. We didn't like to say so before, son, said his father. We thought you'd grow out of it, you see. Grow out of what? said Carrot. Growing. But now your mother thinks, that is, we both think, it's time you went out among your own kind. I mean, it's not fair keeping you cooped up here without company of your own height. His father twiddled a loose rivet on his helmet, a sure sign that he was worried. Um, he added, But you're my kind, said Carrot desperately. In a manner of speaking, yes said his father, in another manner of speaking, which is a rather more precise and accurate manner of speaking, no. It's all this genetics business, you see, so it might be a very good idea if you were to go out and see something of the world. What, for good? Oh, oh, no, no, of course not. Come back and visit whenever you like, but... Well, a lad your age stuck down here, it's it's not right. You know, I mean, not a child any more, having to shuffle around on your knees most of the time and everything. It's not right. What is my own kind, then? said Carrot, bewildered. The old dwarf took a deep breath. You're... Um, human, he said. What, like Mr. Varnashi? Mr. Varnashi drove an ox-cart up the mountain trails once a week to trade things for gold. One of the big people. You're six foot six, lad. He's only five foot. The dwarf twiddled the loose rivet again. 
You see how it is. Yes, but... But maybe I'm just tall for my height, said Carrot desperately. After all, if you can have short humans, can't you have tall dwarfs? His father patted him companionably on the back of the knees. You've got to face facts, boy. You'd be much more at home up on the surface. It's in your blood. The roof isn't so low either. You can't keep knocking yourself out on the sky, he told himself. Hold on, said Carrot, his honest brow wrinkling with the effort of calculation. You're a dwarf, right? And Mam's a dwarf. So I should be a dwarf too. Fact of life. The dwarf sighed. He'd hoped to creep up on this over a period of months, maybe, sort of break it to him gently, but there wasn't any time any more. <sighs> Sit down, lad, he said. Carrot sat. The thing is, he said wretchedly, when the boy's big, honest face was a little nearer his own, we mm, found you in the woods one day, toddling about near one of the tracks. <clears throat> the loose rivet squeaked. The king plunged on. Thing is, you see, there were these carts, on fire, as you might say, and dead people, mm, yes, extremely dead people, because of bandits. It was a bad winter that winter. There were all sorts coming into the hills, so we took you in, of course. And then, well, it was a long winter, like I said, and your mam got used to you, and, well... We never got around to asking Varnashi to make inquiries, and that's the long and the short of it. Carrot took this fairly calmly, mostly because he didn't understand nearly all of it. Besides, as far as he was aware, being found toddling in the woods was the normal method of childbirth. A dwarf is not considered old enough to have the technical processes explained to him. The pronoun is used by dwarfs to indicate both sexes, all dwarfs have beards and wear up to twelve layers of clothing. Gender is more or less optional. Until he has reached puberty, i.e. about fifty-five. All right, Dad, he said, and leaned down so as to be level with the dwarf's ear. But you know, me and, you know, Minty Rocksmacker, she's really beautiful, Dad. Got a beard as soft as a, as a, a very soft thing. We've got an understanding... And, um, yes, said the dwarf coldly, I know. Her father's had a word with me. So did her mother with your mother, he added silently. And then she had a word with me. Lots of words. It's not that they don't like you. You're a steady lad and a fine worker. You'd make a good son-in-law. Four good sons-in-law, that's the trouble. And she's only sixty anyway. It's not proper. Not right. He'd heard about children being reared by wolves. He wondered whether the leader of the pack ever had to sort out something tricky like this. Perhaps he'd have to take him into a quiet clearing somewhere and say, Look, son, you might have wondered why you're not as hairy as everyone else. He'd discussed it with Varnashi. A good, solid man, Varnashi. Of course, he'd known the man's father. And his grandfather, now he came to think about it. Humans didn't seem to last long. It was probably all the effort of pumping blood up that high. Got a problem there, King. Literally, Desar Knick, mine supervisor. Right enough, the old man had said, as they shared a nip of spirits on a bench outside shaft number two. He's a good lad, mind you, 
said the king. Sound character, honest. Not exactly brilliant, but you tell him to do something, he doesn't rest until he's done it. Obedient. You could chop his legs off, said Varnashi. It's not his legs that's going to be the problem, said the king darkly. Ah, yes. Well, in that case, you could... No. No, agreed Varnashi thoughtfully. Hmm. Well, then what you should do is you should send him away for a bit. Let him mix a bit with humans. He sat back. What you've got here, king, is a duck, he added, in knowledgeable tones. I don't think I should tell him that. He's refusing to believe he's a human as it is. What I mean is a duck brought up among chickens. Well-known farmyard phenomenon. Finds it can't bloody well peck and doesn't know what swimming is. The king listened politely. Dwarfs don't go in much for agriculture. But you send him off to see a lot of other ducks and get him his feet wet, and he won't go running around after bantams any more, and Bob's your uncle. Varnashi sat back and looked rather pleased with himself. When you spend a large part of your life underground, you develop a very literal mind. Dwarfs have no use for metaphor and simile. Rocks are hard, and darkness is dark. Start messing around with descriptions like that, and you're in big trouble, is their motto. But after two hundred years of talking to humans, the king had, as it were, developed a painstaking mental toolkit which was nearly adequate for the job of understanding them. Surely Bjorn strung in the arm is my uncle, he pointed out slowly. Same thing. There was a pause while the king subjected this to careful analysis. You're saying, he said, weighing each word, that we should send Carrot a way to be a duck amongst humans, because Bjorn Strung in the arm is my uncle. He's a fine lad. Plenty of openings for a big strong lad like him, said Varnashi. I have heard that dwarfs go off to work in the big city, said the king uncertainly, and they send back money to their families, which is very commendable and proper. There you are, then get him a job in... Uh, in Varnashi sought for inspiration. In in the watch or something. My great grandfather was in the watch, you know. Fine job for a big lad, my granddad said. What is a watch? said the king. Oh, said Varnashi, with the vagueness of someone whose family for the last three generations hadn't travelled more than twenty miles. They goes about making sure people keep the laws and do what they're told. That is a very proper concern, said the king, who, since he was usually the one doing the telling, had very solid views about people doing what they were told. Of course, they don't take just anyone, said Varnashi, dredging the depths of his recollection. I should think not for such an important task. I shall write to their king. I don't think they have a king there said Varnashi, just some man who tells them what to do. The king of the dwarfs took this calmly. This seemed to be about 97% of the definition of kingship, as far as he was concerned. Carrot took the news without fuss, just as he took instructions about reopening shaft number four, or cutting timber for shoring props. All dwarfs are by nature dutiful, serious, literate, obedient, and thoughtful people whose only minor failing is a tendency after one drink to rush at enemies screaming, Rah! and axing their legs off at the knee. Carrot saw no reason to be any different. 
he would go to the city, whatever that was, and have a man made of him. They took only the finest, Varneshi had said. A watchman had to be a skilled fighter and clean in thought, word and deed. From the depths of his ancestral anecdotage, the old man had dragged tales of moonlight chases across rooftops and tremendous battles with miscreants, which, of course, his great-granddad had won despite being heavily outnumbered. Carrot had to admit it sounded better than mining. After some thought, the king wrote to the ruler of Ankh-Morpork, respectfully asking if Carrot could be considered for a place among the city's finest. Letters rarely got written in that mine. Work stopped and the whole clan had sat around in respectful silence as his pen scritted across the parchment. His aunt had been sent up to Varnaches to beg his pardon, but could he see his way clear to sparing a smidgen of wax? His sister had been sent down to the village to ask Mistress Garlic the Witch how you stopped spelling recommendation. Months had gone by, and then there'd been the reply. It was fairly grubby, since mail in the ramtops was generally handed to whoever was going in more or less the right direction, and it was also fairly short. It said boldly that his application was accepted, and would he present himself for duty immediately. Well, just like that, he said. I thought there'd be tests and things to see if I was suitable. You are my son, said the king. I told them that, see? Stands to reason you'll be suitable. Probably officer material. He'd pulled a sack from under his chair, rummaged around in it, and presented Carrot with a length of metal, more a sword than a saw, but only just. This might rightly belong to you, he said. When we found the uh, carts... This was the only thing left. The bandits, you see, just between you and me, he beckoned Carrot closer. We had a witch look at it, in case it was magic, but it isn't. Quite the most unmagical sword she'd ever seen, she said. They normally have a bit, see, on account of its, like, magnetism, I suppose. Got quite a nice balance, though. He handed it over. He rummaged around some more, and then there's this. He held up a shirt. It'll protect you. Carrot fingered it carefully. It was made from the wool of ramtop sheep, which had all the warmth and softness of hog bristles. It was one of the legendary woolly dwarf vests, the kind of vest that needs hinges. Protect me from what? he said. Colds and so on said the king. Your mother says you've got to wear it, and uh, that reminds me. Mr. Varnaschi says he'd like you to drop in on the way down the mountain. He's got something for you. His father and mother had waved him out of sight. Minty didn't. Funny that. She seemed to have been avoiding him lately. He'd taken the sword, slung it on his back, sandwiches and clean underwear in his pack, and the world more or less at his feet. In his pocket was the famous letter from the patrician, the man who ruled the great, fine city of Ankh-Morpork. At least, that's how his mother had referred to it. It certainly had an important-looking crest at the top, but the signature was something like Lupin Squiggle Secchi P.P. Still, if it wasn't actually signed by the patrician, then it had certainly been written by someone who worked for him, or in the same building. Probably the patrician had at least known about the letter in general terms. Not this letter, perhaps, but probably he knew about the existence of letters in general. Carrot walked 
steadfastly down the mountain paths, disturbing clouds of bumblebees. After a while, he unsheathed the sword and made experimental stabs at felonious tree stumps and unlawful assemblies of stinging nettles. Varneshi was sitting outside his hut, threading dried mushrooms on a string. Hello, Carrot, he said, leading the way inside. Looking forward to the city? Carrot gave this due consideration. No, he said. Having second thoughts, are you? No, I was just walking along said Carrot honestly. I wasn't thinking about anything much. Your dad gave you the sword, did he? said Varnashi, rummaging on a fetid shelf. Yes, and a woolly vest to protect me against chills. Ah, yes, it can be very damp down there, so I've heard. Protection, very important. He turned around and added dramatically, This belonged to my great-grandfather. It was a strange, vaguely hemispherical device, surrounded by straps. "'It's some sort of sling,' said Carrot, after examining it in polite silence. Varnashi told him what it was. "'Codpiece like in fish,' said Carrot, mystified. "'No, it's for the fighting,' mumbled Varnashi. "'You should wear it all the time. Protects your vitals, like.' Carrot tried it on. "'It's a bit small, Mr. Varnashi.' That's because you don't wear it on your head, you see. Varnashi explained some more to Carrot's mounting bewilderment, and subsequently horror. My great-grandad used to say, Varnashi finished, that but for this I wouldn't be here today. Oh, what did he mean by that? Varnashi's mouth opened and shut a few times. I've no idea, he said spinelessly. Anyway, the shameful thing was now at the very bottom of Carrot's pack. Dwarfs didn't have much truck with things like that. The ghastly preventative represented a glimpse into a world as alien as the backside of the moon. There had been another gift from Mr. Varnashi. It was a small but very thick book bound in a leather that had become like wood over the years. It was called The Laws and Ordinances of the Cities of Ankh and Morpork. This belonged to my great-granddad as well, he said. This is what the watch has to know. You have to know all the laws, he said virtuously, to be a good officer. Perhaps Varnashi should have recalled that in the whole of Carrot's life no one had ever really lied to him or given him an instruction that he wasn't meant to take quite literally. Carrot solemnly took the book. It would never have occurred to him, if he was going to be an officer of the watch, to be less than a good one. It was a five hundred mile journey and surprisingly quite uneventful. People who are rather more than six feet tall and nearly as broad across the shoulders often have uneventful journeys. People jump out at them from behind rocks, then say things like, Oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. He'd spent most of the journey reading, and now Ankh Morpork was before him. It was a little disappointing. He'd expected high white towers rearing over the landscape and flags. Ankh Morpork didn't rear, rather it sort of skulked clinging to the soil as if afraid someone might steal it. There were no flags. There was a guard on the gate. At least he was wearing chainmail, and the thing he was propped up against was a spear. He had to be a guard. Carrot saluted him and presented the letter. The man looked at it for some time. Hmm, he said eventually. I think I've got to see Lupin Squiggle 
Secchi PP, said Carrot. What's the PP for? said the guard suspiciously. Could it be pretty promptly, said Carrot, who'd wondered about this himself. Well, I don't know about any Secchi, said the guard. You want Captain Vimes of the Night Watch. And where is he based, said Carrot politely. At this time of day I'd try the bunch of grapes in Easy Street, said the guard. He looked Carrot up and down. Joining the watch, are you? I hope to prove worthy, yes, said Carrot. The guard gave him what could loosely be called an old-fashioned look. It was practically Neolithic. What was it you'd done, he said. I'm sorry, said Carrot. You must have done something, said the guard. My father wrote a letter, said Carrot proudly. I've been volunteered. Bloody hellfire, said the guard. Now it was night again, and beyond the dread portal, Are the wheels of torment duly spun? said the Supreme Grand Master. The elucidated brethren shuffled around their circle. Brother Watchtower, said the Supreme Grand Master. Not my job to spin the wheels of torment, muttered Brother Watchtower. It's Brother Plasterer's job spinning the wheels of torment. No, it bloody well isn't. It's my job to oil the axles of universal lemon, said Brother Plasterer hotly. You always say it's my job. The Supreme Grand Master sighed in the depths of his cowl as yet another row began. From this dross he was going to forge an age of rationality. Just shut up, will you? he snapped. We don't really need the wheels of torment tonight. Stop it, the pair of you. Now, brethren, you have all brought the items as instructed. There was a general murmuring. Place them in the circle of conjuration, said the Supreme Grand Master. It was a sorry collection. Bring magical things, he'd said. Only Brother Fingers had produced anything worthwhile. It looked like some sort of altar ornament. Best not to ask from where. The Supreme Grand Master stepped forward and prodded one of the other things with his toe.